some of you, that might be a really offensive statement that Pastor Rogers just made. That you don't have to work at being holy. You actually have to work at being unholy. I'll give you a verse for that. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do you get wages? You work. You have to work to be a sinner. How do you, how do you give a gift? Let somebody give it to you. And the minute you try to work for a gift, it's no longer a gift. Your work redefines the gift to the point where it's no longer a gift. To rightly receive a gift, you just let somebody give you the gift. So you have to work to be a sinner. When Jesus says, be holy for I am holy, be perfect for your Father is perfect, he wasn't giving you an assignment to become anything. He was giving you a prophetic revelation of your present identity from heaven's perspective. That, that'll tweet. <laughs> Listen to that. He wasn't giving you an assignment. How do you be? Somebody said to me, said, uh, well, you know, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it accounted to him for righteousness. I said, great. How do you believe? Show me. Show me how you believe. Do you know how Abraham and God made covenant? God made a covenant with Abraham by, read it, putting Abraham to sleep, and then God completed both sides of the covenant. And Abraham woke up, and it was done. The Bible says, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive. How much work did you put into that? You were dead. <laughs> you just drug your dead old corpse into the presence of the master, and he said, let there be light and life. Boom, you came to life. What'd you do? You were just there. John 15, 3, Jesus says, now you are clean through the words that I've spoken unto you. What? Yeah, I was talking, you were here. Now you're clean. I, I know, I mean, listen, if, if your ego's dead, this makes you really happy. But if you have any spiritual religious pride left in you, you're like, no, 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 no. Give me something to do. Okay, you want to explain? How did Abraham believe and it was accounted to him for righteousness? Picture it like this. If you want to explain it, super simple way. Let's say I walk up to you. And I say, I'm going to pour this giant bucket of water over your head. And when I do, a million dollars will be deposited into your bank account instantly. <laughs> Makes no sense. That's, that's just not the way things work. It's totally bewildering. It's too good to be true. What, what is that? What? <clears throat> Here's how you would work. In response to that, grab an umbrella and resist. That would be work. You know what believing would be? Okay. I don't understand it. It makes no sense, but I'm just going to stand here. And then I pour the water over your head. You get soaked and you hear your phone go cha-ching with a notification that a million dollars has been deposited in your account. What happened? I said something, you said 
Okay. You did nothing. And my work made a deposit into you. That's what it is. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. See? Not even my message. Religion, religion wants you to hear it like this. Abraham obeyed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. As if your obedience is what accesses the grace of God. The Bible tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to change the way we think. Repentance, right? Many of you think it's that your obedience accesses the kindness of God. <laughs> but he loves the most unrepentant sinner as much as he loves the most pious saint. And when you get a fresh revelation that God loves everybody you hate, You'll start going, how wide, how deep, how, ah, right? And you know, the Apostle Paul, when he said that, when he wrote that Ephesians 3 passage that's so beautifully, the best four-point message I've heard in a long time, says uh, that you may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, think about that for a second. How can you know what you can't know? Here's an illustration. My kids, who are 27 and 29 now, when they were little and they were playing out in the backyard and I, I'd come in after a long day and I'm in the house and they hear, Dad's home! And they run in from the backyard. And my little daughter, who couldn't even spell the word love, you know what I would do? I would do a crazy thing. I would sweep her up in my arms. I'd dance around the room with her. She and my son, Britton, Sarah and Britton, in my arms. I'd love them. I'd kiss them. I'd hug them. But they didn't understand love. They couldn't spell it, barely pronounce it. I'd say, I love you. She'd go, I love you too. I love you. I love you. I love you. Now, what kind of a father would I be if I said, look, <clears throat> it is my desire to pour out my love upon you. But before I can do that, you need to explain to me what love is so that I can be aware that you know what I am giving you. What a terrible father I would be. Here's the point. Their inability to understand something did not negate their ability to experience it. You look around, people that are free beyond belief in this room, and you're going, I don't understand what's going on here. Maybe if I understood it, I would experience it not the way it works. God will draw you into experiences that you don't have any grid for at all. To take you beyond your understanding, and that, listen to me, that is where peace is found. That's why the Bible says, may the peace of God, which is beyond, surpasses beyond the realm of understanding, keep and guard your heart and mind. And sometimes we think, I don't want to be deceived so therefore, I am only going to limit all of my experiences with God to only things I understand. And then you wonder why it seems like everybody around you is experiencing the love of the Father. And this is what I'm saying. You may not be able to even spell the word agape. You run into the Father's arms. Let him pick you up. Let him dance around with you. Let him, let him grow you into the maturity of becoming a child. 
where you're just filled with wonder. You don't even have a clue as to what's going on, but you were enjoying his presence. And if somebody said, what's happening? You'd be like, I don't know, but it's amazing. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Oh, yay. That's a good segue into what I want to talk to you about today. Go to Luke chapter 15. Okay, um, <clears throat> my entire life I have had this value for the scriptures, and I've read it over and over and over again. Uh, it's a daily part of my diet. And the things that I read in the scriptures, I, I don't like to read them just once and then forget and move on, right? I don't even like to, to, to memorize something and then not go back and revisit it. And the reason is because this word is alive. <clears throat> and there is layered revelation in here. And it's, it's, it's like it comes to you in seed form. And it will come to you when you are ready to see it. So you can revisit things and stories and, and parables and, and teachings that you have learned and heard and soaked in. You can do it a thousand times. And on a thousand and one, you'll see something you've never seen before. And you'll say to yourself, when did that get put in there? And the thing about it is, is once you see it, it's like you can't unsee it. And most of the revelation that God wants to show us, listen to this, is an unveiling of a goodness that we still don't believe in yet. He always pushes the limits of how good we think he can be. Always. With every covenant down through the ages, God has shown himself to be better than the previous covenant keepers thought he could be. And so when he encounters us, he encounters our concepts of who he is. And those concepts have limits to them. It's like, okay, this is God, and this is my box for him. And uh, it's been said things like this, like, like the, even the word God, my concept of God is like the blanket I throw over the mystery that gives it some kind of a shape. And God comes to explode all of those concepts, boxes, blankets, all that stuff. And he did it most effectively in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus shows up to the Jews of his day, the Israel of his day, he's looking at people who for 1,300 years have considered themselves experts on God. They know everything about what God is like, and they are the keepers of the traditions that have been passed down to them from their forefathers. And that faith, as it's gone down through the ages, actually picks up steam. Starts out with 10 commandments, it turns into 613 laws. And Jesus doesn't show up and high-five them like, way to go, way to make it complicated, guys. He shows up to take what we've made complicated and to simplify it back into one thing, and that is him blows up all of our complication. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was doing this. We don't fully realize like some of the things that he wrote in his letters were like a gut punch to some of the religious thought of the day. Matter of fact, uh, in the Talmud, beyond the Torah, the first five books of Moses, is the Talmud. And it's the Hebraic sayings of rabbis down through the ages. And basically it was like every rabbi wanted to make their mark upon the religious tradition. So they were always adding new thoughts, ideas, laws, and, what, and some of those sayings would take hold. For example, one rabbi had said, for him who wishes to know what is the height, the length, the width, the depth of God 
it would be better for you that you had not been born. In other words, just don't even try to think about God because you can't wrap your mind. And I'm saying like this, he's not unsearchable, he's inexhaustible. That's the deal. There's an inexhaustible eternal reality that we're drawn into. When Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians, that you may know the length, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth, the love of the love of God which surpasses knowledge, he was giving a sucker punch to a common, common rabbinical saying of his day. He was basically saying, no, here's the deal. The intention is that in Christ, that the revelation of the height, the length, the breadth, the depth, the width of the love of God would blow your mind and take you into encounter. It goes on to say in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all you could ask or even think, to him be glory in the church. So he wants to make himself known to you, but from within you, so that this glory that you carry explodes from within you like an oasis, like a well, like a fountain, to completely shape the spiritual geography of the land around you. You are a walking nuclear dynamo of the glory of God. You are the ark of the new covenant. There's a million ways I could say it, but the reality is when you see who you truly are, it'll blow your mind, and it'll change your perspective of everybody around you. And when you see people walking in sin and blindness, listen, that will no longer offend you because all it will reveal is a simple truth. This is a son and a daughter who doesn't know who their dad is. Well, I've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So let's unveil the spirit of adoption by introducing you to Jesus. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so, so the revelation from Jesus to these religious experts was this is what the Father's like. You don't believe it, but I'm going to tell you, this is what the Father's like. And he told a series of parables, stories, and probably no better story uh, revealed the nature and the character of the father in an amazing and, and, and offensive way, actually, than the story of what we come to know as, as the prodigal son. It's unfortunate that that name, the prodigal son, got attached to this story because it's really not about that guy. It's about so much more than that. This is the revelation of a family, and, and Jesus is revealing the nature and the character of the Father, but he, he's also going to do something remarkable, and that is to leave it open-ended so you and, I actually, uh, you and I actually get to speculate about a few things, and I think uh, we're going to have some fun doing that this morning. Now, before I dive into this, let me just tell you, I've read this probably a thousand times in my life. I've preached on it well over a hundred times in my life, and every time I read it, and preach on it, I see something new. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just dare you today to believe this with me, that I'm going to show you some things in this story that are hidden in plain sight that you've never seen before. And I bet I'll learn right along with you today. All right. Luke chapter 15. Uh, excuse me, we're going to start in uh, verse 11. Jesus speaking said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his, liv his living, his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, 
journeyed into a far country, and there wasted all of his wealth with riotous prodigal living. When he had spent all, there arose a great famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. When it's still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he doesn't even finish the speech, by the way. The father turns and says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. As older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked, what do these things mean? Said to him, your brother's come because he's received him uh, safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you and never transgressed your commandment at any time and yet you never even gave me a goat that i might make merry with my friends but as soon as this son of yours hear that language not my brother the son of yours comes who has devoured your living with harlots you kill the fatted calf for him said to him listen to what the father says son you are always with me and all that i have is yours it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again was lost and is found now today i visit this not because i think this is a good sermon as a matter of fact i think this is the fifth time i've i've talked about this what i'm going to specifically share on today but believe i I believe there's a timeliness to the message i'm going to share with you today and you're going to understand by the end why This isn't just a simple message on the prodigal son. This is a timely word for the body of Christ. And how you respond to this word in your own heart will determine how we go into the next season. Okay? So let's start at the beginning of the story. Uh, Keep in mind, what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking a parable. It's a poem. It's a story. It's an allegory. We don't know if there was actually a certain man with two sons. In other words, he's not necessarily recounting an actual event in the news. He's giving us an earthly story that unveils spiritual wisdom. Like, what's an illustration I can use? Like the bucket, the water, and the money I talked about earlier. That's what Jesus is doing. And when he's telling this story... He's going to tell it in a specific way so that not a single word is wasted. And the words and the choices of actions that he uses are actually meant to generate a response in you. So as we walk through this, I want you to just watch what happens in your heart as you and I, as an audience, listen as Jesus unveils this story. He starts out with saying it's not just about one son, it's about two sons. And one of the sons looks at the father and essentially says to the father, 
Let me ask you a question. When do you get an inheritance from, from your parents? When they die. So what you have here is a young son saying to his father, you know, it'd be financially beneficial for me if you were dead. Can we just pretend that that's the way it is right now? You give me my inheritance and I can just leave home and never see you again. Think about the insulting nature, the dishonoring nature of that son's request. And then the way Jesus tells the story is this. The father grants the request, but doesn't just give the inheritance to the son that asks it. He gives it to both sons. Says he divided to them his living. In other words, the father gives them everything they ask for. Only one asks, but he gives it both. And so stop and think about this with me for a second. You're a father and your son comes to you and says, man, I wish you were dead so I could have all your money. It'd be great because, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a, I'd love to go to Vegas and waste it all on harlots. Now, as a father, would you empower that? No. If you knew what they were going to go do, and you knew that they were going to waste it, maybe even get killed in the process, you may never see them again. Why, as a father, if you're a good dad, why in the world would you empower that? So the way Jesus tells this story is that the father doesn't even push back on the son. The father just grants what the son asks. And I think it's meant to actually generate something within our heart, and you may be able to feel it even right now without even like admitting it. I think we can all say to ourselves, we would do it differently. In other words, we all can find ourselves sitting in judgment of the father's parenting skills right here. See, Jesus begins the story by generating an offense in us at the freedom the father gives his son. We're already offended, and he hasn't even hardly gotten started. We're already judging the father, and he's barely even opened up the book to share the story with us. And so I want you to just understand that this is the deal. God has such a high value for freedom that if you saw the value that God had for freedom, it would offend you. As a matter of fact, many of you have tried to press the limits of your freedom to see whether or not God's going to show up and respond. And isn't it shocking when the God of the universe, who clearly unveils his heart, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he loves and what he hates, when, when you go out, even as his child, and you go out and try to exercise an action that you know violates the values of your father's heart, and you realize not only is he going to let you, but even when you try not to be a son, he never stops being a father. Now, hopefully you don't have to press the limits of your ability to sin in order to understand that the father is like this, but many of you have. Many of us have. We've come to the, the end of ourselves, into the hog pen of our own choices, to the valley of the shadow of death, only to find that Jesus is right there to lead us home. It's the grace of God. I think that's why Jesus said, speaking of the woman who broke the alabaster jar over his feet, that ever made every, all the religious people uncomfortable in the room. He says, you know why she's doing this? Because she's been forgiven a lot. You've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. And I'm not saying that you have to go to prison to appreciate freedom, but understand this, if you've ever been in prison, you probably appreciate freedom 
a little more than everybody else. See what I'm saying? And so the father looks at the son and goes, you want to pretend like I'm dead, like I don't exist, and make a choice that completely offends our values and hurts my heart? Okay. He doesn't bless it, but he allows it. I think there's something that the father knows, that the journey to the hog pen is actually going to lead the son home. And he's going to learn things in the hog pen he would have never learned in the house. And some of you got kids out in the world, you think, the devil has taken my kids. Stop. The devil's a thief. A thief can never legally own anything he ever steals. The devil owns nothing and nobody. Just let that sit. Some of you are thinking, man, my kids are gone, they're lost, they're off, off in the world in the hog pen of life. Just because they try not to be a son and a daughter, don't you stop being a father and a mother. Amen. Matter of fact, I'd say this, I think some of you have, have let, let a spirit of depression hit your house because it feels like a death, and so mourning feels, feels appropriate. And the crazy thing is, they're sitting off out there in the world, and they're watching you. It's a power play. It's the end, they're coming to the end of their pride, and, and your depression can actually be continuing to inflate their pride because they see the power that they have over your house, right? Hear what I'm saying? So you let the oil of joy for gladness show up in the middle of your morning. You guys get happy, crank on some music, start dancing around the house. They call up. They call up to ask you for some more money. Let them hear the doom, doom, doom in the background. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. Mom and I are having a party. We're dancing. This is great. Love you. Talk later. Click. You know what you'll hear pretty soon? Knock at the door. What's going on? You know what they're asking? Why have I lost the power to control you with my behavior? And isn't this the reason why many of us, even as Christians, decide to choose a sin lifestyle for a time to see whether or not we can influence God with our behavior? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're just barely into the story. Hold on with me. It gets crazier. So the son goes out and he does his thing. He comes to the end of himself. He actually runs out of money. He runs out of friends. He has nothing. The only job he can seem to find is feeding pigs, and he's not making enough money to go down to the local McDonald's and buy a burger, so what does he do? He ends up eating the pig food to sustain himself, and suddenly he has a moment. <laughs> you know, at home, even the servants in my father's house have food. I'm tired of this pig food. I'm going home. So he makes up a speech. Now, it sounds like he's repenting. Understand, He's not going home because he's sorrowful. He's not going home because, oh, I've done a bad thing. He's going home because he's tired of eating pig slop. So he makes up a speech to try to persuade his father to not receive him back as a son, but give him a job where he can eat better than pigs. So here, understand this with me. This is the danger of sin. Sin warps your perception of yourself first, where you forget that you're a son and a daughter, and all you can think of yourself as is a servant. 
The other thing it does is it warps your perception of the Father. Because you don't understand how good he is or what he's like. And you think, maybe he'll receive me, maybe he won't. But the best that I can hope for is to become a worker in the house. Not part of the family anymore. You know how many people are sitting in church working for God who don't feel any connection to family? They're just glad to be a servant in the house. When God is trying to convince you that you actually carry the family name, that you've been, you've been brought into this by the spirit of adoption, that's by his choosing, and you've also been bled into this by the blood of Christ, so you're both chosen and born into this family, meaning you're twice as much a child of God than you could ever be a child of anybody on this earth, because you're adopted and born into this. By the will of the Father and by the blood of Christ. When you begin to realize that, what do you do? By faith, you just go, okay, and you receive that divine blood transfusion and recognize your identity is my inheritance. Wow. And now, and you are, you're jumping out of your skin with joy and gratitude at the goodness of your Father, right? And so here comes the prodigal son, though. He makes up his re- repentance speech and he starts to head home. What does the story say? When the father saw him coming, which means the father was looking, Jesus places the father in a posture of watching the horizon because he, he feels like he knows this is inevitable. And here comes the son, and the father runs. Now, this is the part of the story that has been mined the most and preached the most, and that is that, you know, the father would never run because it's undignified, so we have to, like, hike his robe, and he's running. And it's either way, however you've ever heard it, it's a display of passion over dignity. It's love over any sense of, of, of uh, uh, I want to protect my, my uh, reputation here. He runs toward his son. And when the son is, is thinking in his mind, okay, I'm, I, I know my speech. I've rehearsed it all the way home. And the son doesn't even get a word out of his mouth before the father tackles him and kisses him. The, fa- the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Before he can get it done, the father interrupts him by calling for the servants, saying, give me the robe, the ring, and the sandals all prophetically significant. And if I dove into those, it would take us a whole week to dive into, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, I've, got a, I've got a point I want to hit, and it's really important, especially for this day. So he restores his identity. He restores his authority. He restores his humanity. He restores his dignity. He restores his place in the house. The son doesn't have to work to earn it back. It was always his. Never stop being his. In the Father's mind, it never stopped being his. Listen, sin will warp your mind about God, but it will never change God's mind about you. God told the prophet Jeremiah, I knew you before I even formed you. Which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So what did he know? What he knew before you even knew yourself, that is who you truly are. You have one assignment in this life. Find out what dad believes about you and agree with that. Do you hear what I said? You got one assignment. Here's your one assignment as a human being. 
Find out what God has always believed about you and agree with that. And it will only require that you let go of every lie and label that you've believed about yourself, that other people have placed upon you, that your failures have have tattooed your life with. God believes things about you you don't believe yet. It's true. And so the father, he reveals his grace, his love to this son. And then he goes, crank up the band, start the music, fire up the barbecue. I like that part of the story. I love that. I just love that Jesus, you know, presents the homecoming of the son to the father's heart and celebrates it with a a filet, medium rare filet. Yeah, good times. God invented barbecue, I'm fully convinced. Sweetheart, I'm going outside to have a worship service. I fire up the grill. That's the way it goes. Every bite, oh man, so much glory on it. Okay, listen, if you're a vegetarian, God bless you. But, 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 but why? It's okay. It's okay. We all have our reasons. No condemnation. (laughs) Aren't those impossible burgers kind of like false prophets? (laughs) Looks like meat. Tastes like meat. Until it doesn't. Tracy just mouths to me, you're going to get in trouble. If I was in California, maybe, but not Florida. Florida. Carnivore Central here in Florida. Seriously, if you're a vegetarian, God bless. All right, good. So, moving on. (laughs) so party starts and now here comes the point of the story now the point of jewish stories actually isn't how it begins but how it ends and the story majority the end of the story has to do with the father and not the younger son the son's partying with the father and the father hears that the older son is out in the field he's still working he's got no clue as to what's going on the older son says to the the, one of the servants what's going on says uh, your son uh, the the, your other your brother's back and dad's received him and the son is angry beyond belief now the father hears about this and the father leaves the party and comes out to the son and the son decides to give him a piece of his mind says man i've worked for you all these years all this time all this i've done for you You don't even give me a goat. The fatted calf you give to that guy who wasted everything you gave him with prostitutes? Jesus includes this word in the story. Now, this is an interesting point because the son went to a far country. How did the older brother know what he was doing? Unless he was collecting dirt on his little brother. Somehow the older brother got some intel he collected some dirt and he tells dad yeah you want to know what your son was actually doing 
while he was out there. This is what he was doing. And in the older brother's estimation, the righteous thing is not what the father has chosen. What is the older brother doing? He's expressing an offense that the grace of the father is being given to this kid for free. He hasn't done anything to earn it. And the older brother, who in his own eyes, in his own mind, has been self-righteous in everything he's done for the father, can't deal with it. He's offended at the grace of the father. So Jesus starts out by generating in us a judgment against the father's parenting skills at the amount of freedom that the father gives the son. And then he takes us into a conversation with an older brother who did it all right, who kept all of the rules and who worked really, really hard. And now you can feel it, this older brother angry at the father's grace. And the father responds to the older brother, not by rebuking him, but by doing the exact same thing with the older brother that he did with the younger. See, the older brother, just like the younger, believed things about himself and the father that weren't true. The truth is, neither one of the sons knew the father. You say, wait, the older brother wasn't a sinner. Listen, sin is anything. It's not the naughty things that you go out and do. It's way more than that. Sin is any mindset that you carry that creates a barrier, an illusion of distance and separation between you and God. Because remember, is it John 10, when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheepfold, the only way you get into the sheepfold is through me. It goes on to say, but the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Try to go any other way, but through the door, you're a thief and a robber. And the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now we look at that story, we look at that illustration, and we immediately think that the thief is the devil. And honestly, yes, the devil is a thief. But that story is not about the devil. Jesus is saying, there is a way for you to have a revelation of union with God, with the Father. You're not going to get it through the efforts of climbing over a wall, burrowing under, busting through. You're going to get it by one way, and that's by going through the door. And he says, any Anybody who tries to have a relationship with God apart from me, that is a thief and a robber. You know what he was describing? Religion. The thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy is any religious system that creates a barrier that you have to work to be qualified Are you saying religion's the thief? That's exactly what I'm saying. And the older brother in the story of the prodigal son was every good Israelite who did it all right and still didn't know the father. The barrier was there just like it was with the younger. And now you know, you know how he's going to maintain this barrier? 
by judging the father's grace and judging the brother's sin. And this is what the religious do. You can see it. You can smell it a mile away. They immediately have judgment for the father's grace and for the sin of their brothers. And you know what? To everybody else, it looks like a strong Christian that doesn't compromise anything. But can I tell you something? I'm in a place in my life where I'm not going to compromise the Father's love. We don't mind compromising the Father's love as long as it makes us look self-righteous. But what Jesus is revealing in the story of the prodigal son here is, listen, the whole point is this, that you and I have relationship, that we hang out, that there be no barrier of distance and separation. There's no distance, no separation between us. You can be outside of the house, you can be in the house and still not know me. So get to know me. And it begs the question. Why was the son working so hard? Because he was trying to earn something from the father? What didn't he have? The father looks at him and says, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. The younger son got money. The older son got the whole farm. He he was working for what he had already been freely given and didn't realize it. Did he not get the memo? Have you not gotten the memo? So here comes, the, here comes the older brother and choose out the father. And you got to ask the question, listen, do you, how did you let the father stand out on the porch day after day after day and just stand there at a distance offended rather than go out and spend, sit down on the rocking chair on the porch of the house and ask the father, why are you watching the horizon? Let the Father reveal His heart to you. If you take the time to listen and let the Father reveal His heart to you, you know what would have happened? The Father wouldn't have had to run alone. You see that? It's offensive now, and I think about it. When I start going, I'm not compromising the father's love. You know what the thing that becomes offensive? Not the sin of the younger son. It becomes offensive to me that somebody in the house who's a son of the father let the father run alone. He should have ran with the father. It should have been a family reunion out there. So, and let me ask you this. And and here's where we come to the end of the story. We come to the end of the story, and Jesus leaves it open-ended. We don't know if the older son ever goes into the house. And I think he means to leave it like this for a reason. And the question is basically like this. Do you see yourself in this story, and what are you going to do? Jesus is revealing that all of us on some level are the elder brother, and he's asking, what are you going to do with the revelation that you are always with me and everything I have is yours? Now, are you going to let that produce a gratitude and a grace in your heart and join the party? Okay, so, so, <laughs> it's true. And one of the craziest parts of this story to me is, is when I stop and think about this open-ended part of the story, and I think, if this was a real scenario, what do you think happens in that house when the music's done, the barbecue pit's shut off? Everybody goes to bed, and the next morning they wake up. 
And that younger son wakes up and he's back home. All is bliss. Roll the credits of the movie, right? No. Who do you think would make it hard for him to stay in the house? Mm, see, now the problems just begin. Because the father is like, I'm so glad you're home. And then the father leaves the room and the older brother and the younger brother are left alone. Can you imagine the conversation? I'm going to speculate with you, but let's just see whether or not this rings. I, I, I bet we can all guess what that might be like. Older brother looks at the younger brother and says, you know what? I know dad acts like he's really happy. And no doubt he is. But trust me, he's really actually disappointed in you. I mean, behind that, behind that smile at you coming home, he is so angry with you. I mean, you understand what you did? He hates what you did. You violated every value in his heart. He absolutely is so angry with you. And, and when this season of grace is done, I'm just saying, I mean, when he unloads on you, don't say I didn't warn you. You had it coming. You can try to say you're sorry all day long, but you know if you actually want to make it right, what you actually ought to do is work to pay back everything you squandered. I mean, seriously, that's what you should do. Now, the older brother, what is he doing here? You can, you can feel it, right? And, and how many of you, you know, I know I'm speculating. That's not in the Bible. That doesn't happen in the Scriptures. But you know where it does happen? So it's not really all that speculative because it happens all the time. And what is the older brother doing? What does the elder brother syndrome do in that moment? What it does is the elder brother, when it has a chance to speak into the younger brother's life, causes the younger brother, listen, causes the younger brother to question the love of the father. <laughs> causes the younger brother to wonder, is this grace real? causes the younger brother to not trust the father when the father says, I love you. Causes the younger brother to go, you're right, I'm actually not worthy. I'll never be able to measure up to you. Not in your eyes. Exactly. And when he leaves, what does the older brother say? I knew it wasn't real. I knew, the re I knew his repentance was a joke. And the older brother, the younger brother can't deal with being in the... I see it all the time, you guys. Listen, I see people coming to church, broken on the wheels of living. They come back into the body, and what do they do? They look around a bunch of happy, faithful people, and they think, even if the Father loves me, I'll never measure up to these guys. <laughs> and when they encounter elder brother syndrome within the body, all it takes is a little comment and a little jab to let them know not 100% sure this grace is real, and I probably should work a little bit harder around here to repay back everything I squandered. And pretty soon they realize they can never work enough. And when they leave, the elder brother syndrome in the house goes, yeah, we needed to purge the body of that. That repentance wasn't real. You know why it wasn't real? They came back confused about the nature of their identity and the nature of the father's identity. You know what they should run into? Elder brothers and sisters who grab them and look at them dead in the eye and go, it's real. He loves you. It's not a joke. 
It's not a facade masking inward anger and rage. His love is 100% through and through and through. There's no end to it. You are actually forgiven. You know what? Oh, better than that. You're not just forgiven. You're innocent. How about that? Innocent? Yes. Grace restores the standard. We're all, this, we're all in the same boat here. We're all children of a good dad. And it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. Welcome home. Fire up the grill. Here's what I'm saying. God is stirring in prodigals all over the earth today to turn their heart toward the love in the Father's house. And when prodigals see the Father's love in the Father's house, the prodigals will come home. But the only way that move of God will impact the earth is if they meet elder brothers and sisters who will who will represent correctly the Father's heart. Represent rightly the Father's love. Represent with accuracy the Father's grace. You're going to have to get in their face and you're going to have to exaggerate the Father's grace to convince them that it's real. Because they don't know. Here comes the biggest question about this story to me that just glares in my mind. Last night we talked about how we interpret the, the, the uh, parables from a new covenant perspective. And the, and the rule of thumb is find Jesus in the story and you'll find you. Because you're made in his image and likeness. No distance, no separation. Unveils a depth of... Listen to last night's teaching. You'll, you'll, it'll make sense. So I go to the prodigal son story and I go, okay... If I want to get a revelation of my posture in the story, where is Jesus in this story? Now, it seems pretty obvious that Jesus, of course, he's the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I am the Father one. So he, in the story, is, is putting on display the Father's heart, except for this. The Father never leaves the house in the story. But Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. So how do we deal with this discrepancy here? Maybe Jesus in the story isn't the father here. And maybe Jesus actually isn't in this story. Maybe Jesus is a completely different kind of elder brother. Maybe Jesus is the elder brother who does it right. And what would that look like? That would look like an elder brother who doesn't go out to collect dirt on his younger brother. It would look like an elder brother who steps into the hog pen with the younger brother to take on the false identity of the younger brother on himself and to give the righteousness of his innocence to the younger brother and restore him. The Bible says he, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. What did Jesus do? Jesus, who is, who is the firstborn of many brethren, Jesus stepped out from the throne room of God, stepped out of heaven, leaves home to come into the hog pen of our delusion and our darkness, not to condemn us and not to dig up dirt on us, but to walk us home. 
It's not just enough for Jesus to sit on the porch and watch the horizon. Jesus is the elder brother who says, Dad, I'm going to go get him. (laughs) The apostle Peter, 2,000 years ago, gave us an illustration of what happened right after the cross that still boggles the mind today and, and makes theologians turn red in the face. And that is this, that Jesus, between the cross and the resurrection descends into hell, according to the Nicene Creed. And Peter writes it like this, to preach the gospel to the souls of men in prison, even from the time of Noah. Which, by the way, Noah's generation is the only generation of humanity that ever made God say, we got to start over. The worst generation that has ever been. You say, Bill, is this second chance theology? No, it's first chance theology. These people had never heard anything before. This is all before Jesus. And here is every person who dies before Jesus locked in this prison. And now what does Jesus show up to do? Well, we know what he shows up to do. To take the keys of death and hell, and according to Luke chapter 4, to set prisoners and captives free. And prisoners and captives are two different kinds of people. Prisoners and captives are both in the same bondage, but for different reasons. Captives are in chains because of what somebody else has done. Somebody else made a choice, and now I'm paying for it. That makes you a captive. Well, my goodness, justice says you ought to go free. But he doesn't say, I'm just releasing captives. He says, I'm releasing prisoners too. Prisoners are in the same bondage, but it's because of what they've done. And Jesus looks at it and goes, I'm here to set prisoners and captives free. In other words, I'm not really so interested in how you got into the chains. I see my kids in chains and I want to set you free, period. So when, what do we know that Jesus did? It says he preached the gospel. Gospel means good news in hell. Good news. You know what news is? News is reporting something that has already happened. So what is he doing? He's going to tell them what's happened. Oh, by the way, I got the keys. And you know what he does? He opens prison doors. He sets captives free. We have even written songs about it. So listen, I'm not saying he forced everybody down there to say yes. I mean, maybe there's some people down there who you enjoy drinking boiling water and whatever you do down there. But I'm just saying, I think you couldn't preach the gospel without giving people a chance to respond. So, so then, hell is not so much the dumpster fire where God throws all the waste of humanity as much as it's a demonstration of the lengths to which God will go to redeem you. So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be truly Christ-like, this is the question I need to ask: What is the hell I'm willing to walk into right now to convince somebody wallowing in the hog pen of life of the Father's love? What is the hell you're willing to walk into right now to bring the authenticity of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ to somebody who desperately needs to hear it? Some of you this morning came in, you go, I'm in that hell right now. And it's maybe of your own making, you're suffering under the weight of your own choices, your own sins, and you go, I can identify with the prodigal. I'm in the hog pen. I don't feel worthy to be a son. To you, I'm saying, welcome home. The Father's love is real. 
And to others of you, you're in the hell of your own making. You've made choices and you're letting the enemy convince you that you're not worthy to be called the Father's Son. And you know what I say to you? Welcome home. The Father's love is real. But maybe you're the elder brother. Maybe you've done it all right. And you got a list of people you can't wait for God to deal with. Every person who doesn't know the Lord is walking through a hell of blindness, confusion, and torment. Even if they look like everything's going good on the outside. Walking in blindness, doing things you know God wouldn't approve of. You know you don't approve of. But if you can look and realize that's a son and a daughter who doesn't know who their dad is. And you become a minister of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the entirety of the cosmos to himself by not counting our trespasses against us. In other words, he didn't look for people who weren't sinning and reconcile them. He looked at a world filled with sin and go, you know what? We're not going to put that in their account. So when you pop open your sin balance on your phone, you're like, what's my sin balance? To oh, it's zero. That's crazy. It's a zero balance. I'm sure I had some sin in there. Jesus is like, you know what? Your sin balance looks just like mine. Zero, right? You mean that means I'm just as holy as you? The Bible says you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You don't just have righteousness. You are righteous. It's not what you have. It's who you are. So the Bible says that this is how reconciliation happened from God through Christ toward us. And you know what the Bible then goes on to say? And now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God is about to bring a flood of prodigals through these doors into this house. It is my prayer that they will run into elder brothers and sisters who will grab them, look them straight in the eye, embrace them and say the Father's love is real. The Father's love is real. Stand with me this morning. The Father's love is real. The Father's love is real. The world needs to know it. The church needs to know it. Just you put your hands out in front of you just like this today? Say, so Jesus, I believe what you believe about me. And I receive the Father's love. Remove every bit of elder brother syndrome out of my heart. Give me a revelation of your grace that offends me. <laughs> Some of you never prayed to be offended before. Ego doesn't like that. <clears throat> you know what happens when God offends you with his grace? When God offends you with his grace, you will begin to believe that you are a son. You will begin to believe that you are righteous, pure, and holy, not by anything that you've done, purely by the work of Jesus. And you'll live your life out of a place of reconciled rest in the heart of the Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just bow your heads with me this morning and say, Bill, I recognize. 
I've either been the prodigal or the elder brother. I'm not going to differentiate between the two. Say, I've been either the prodigal or I've been the elder brother. And, and, and if that's you and you recognize a little elder brother syndrome, or you recognize that you've let the hog pen of life warp your perception of your own identity, and you want to lay both of those things down today and walk free, if that's you, would you just lift? I'm not going to have you come up here this morning. I'm just going to have you lift both of your hands to the Lord right now. And we just go into Abba, Father, posture. Like we're crying out, Abba, Father. It's like Dad reached down, picked me up. I can't stand on my own anymore. Take, take me in your embrace. This is what you're saying in this moment. Saying, take me in your embrace like a child. And take me into experiences of knowing your love that go beyond knowledge. Take me into experiences of knowing your grace that goes beyond comprehension. Take me into experiences of knowing your heart that goes beyond my ability to put it into words. And God, I pray that you would fill us all with the spirit of wisdom and revelation to speak and release the sound of heaven into the ears of every prodigal that we see. That the fire of the agape affection of your heart would be burning in our eyes as we look with no condemnation. That as they stare into our eyes that they would have an encounter with you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just receive the Father's love. Just let Him pour, just pour that oil of grace over you. Just let Him pour that healing grace over you today. You don't have to work for it, just let Him. Maybe, maybe this is the, the greatest act of faith that you will ever do, and that is just simply say, okay, okay, Jesus, I believe. I believe. You 
goodness.